0: Writer-performer Ben McKenzie is best known as a comedian specialising in science and geek culture. His work includes comedy lectures as The Man in the Lab Coat, the improvised adventure show Dungeon Crawl, the Melbourne Museum Comedy Tour, live games like The Whispering Society with, the, with Pop-Up Playground and the Doctor Who podcast Splendid Chaps with John Richards. He also works as a voiceover artist, presenter and actor and is an associate producer of Cherchez La Forme ...the monthly feminist Q&A in the pub event. His favourite dinosaur is the Stegosaurus. (laughs) Can you join me in welcoming Ben to the stage? I'm just reading the advice on my iPad... uh, ...which, because I'm a massive nerd, says, don't panic. Because unlike the others telling stories tonight, I'm not a scientist... I'm not a qualified scientist. I studied science at university. I never finished a degree. Um, So, that means Stephen Hawking has 10 more degrees than me, which is quite daunting. Uh, But I am a scientician, uh, which is a word I invented so that I could describe myself (laughs) and not be sued under the Trades Descriptions Act. (laughs) So far, it has worked. I'm an enthusiastic amateur scientist. I've always loved science. Uh, It's why I started doing comedy about science. And I I think most people are like this. I think all children are scientists. This is something I've been told many times by people who work with children in science and communication. Some kids are always wanting to know about the worlds around them, and I basically never stop doing that. I like to see wonders in the world and not just go, ooh, but also ask questions. Questions like, how does a rainbow work? Is it colder or hotter on the moon than it is on Earth? What even is a banana? (laughs) Seriously, look it up. It's not even a tree, it's a herb. It's technically a fruit. People think they walk up hills, but actually it's just because there's a massive plant under the ground and sometimes it will sprout a little bit further up the hill than the last time. It's creepy. Okay, that's all I'm saying. But this modern idea of what a scientist is, someone with formal academic qualifications in science, someone who uses the scientific method to further our understanding of the natural world around us, that is a very modern idea. And in fact, the word word scientist itself was only invented in 1833 and didn't get widely accepted and used until the late 19th century or early 20th century, depending on where in the world you live. And before then, people who practiced science were called natural philosophers or sometimes men of science, which will give you an indication of the gender politics of the time. (laughs) And tonight, it's not a man of science that I want to talk about. I want to talk about someone who, like me, was a fellow amateur, um, but who, unlike me, has managed managed to make a tremendous uh, contribution to science in the world. And I, I always like to poll audiences when I'm talking to them because often I'm working in a, a comedy room and you can never tell, you know, when you're in between someone doing the difference between men and women, not physiologically but just with crass stereotypes, and someone else who's, uh, who's doing puns, um, you're never quite sure who in the audience will know anything about science? So I'm just, I'm, I'm curious. How many people here, just by a show of hands, uh, know who Mary Anning is? Two, okay. Um, but just by contrast, how many people here have seen Jurassic Park? Okay, I've got your measure now. Um, <laughs> don't feel bad. I mean, Jurassic Park's got a lot of problems. Huge problems. I mean, the velociraptors in that film, I could go on, and I will. Um, There's so many problems with them. I mean, they're too big by half, they're not covered in feathers, Uh, they're able to open doors and communicate with each other, and they have an exquisite sense of dramatic timing, which, if you study the literature, is actually not a very good evolutionary trait to have. Because if you're waiting for that perfect moment, they get away in the real world. So it's not a very accurate film. Um, but one of the things that's important that's inaccurate in the film is that uh, you can't take the DNA out of a mosquito that bit a, uh, a, a dinosaur and then turn it into a dinosaur. There's two reasons for this. First of all, um, the mosquitoes that drink the sap, the feed on the sap, don't... And, and land on trees and therefore get trapped in amber. The male mosquitoes who don't drink blood in the first place. But second of all... Even if you could get the DNA out and and put it into an egg and and then, you know, incubate that egg. The DNA is only part of the story of the development of life. It might be the blueprint, as some people say. Um, Richard Dawkins, who has written many things with which I disagree, but he does write that it's not so much a blueprint, it's more like a recipe. And then it's all about how the cook interprets that recipe and what they do with it, and, it's, and about what ingredients you use. So it's just as important, the developmental process, the, the environment in which a new organism can develop that determines what it is and how it, you know, what genes will be turned on at what time. So it turns out that you can't just take the DNA of an animal that no longer exists and stick it inside another animal and make that original animal. So what you actually need in order to make a dinosaur is a dinosaur. (laughs) That's some catch, that catch-22, you know what I mean? And in order to study dinosaurs, in order to develop the science of paleontology, to understand that millions of years ago there was a completely different ecosystem with animals that aren't quite like any animals that exist today, you needed to find their remains. And that's where Mary Anning comes in. Let's set the scene. This is... This is before Charles Darwin. We're talking about the very beginning of the 19th century. In fact, Mary Anning was born in uh, 1799. She was born in the late 18th century. and At that time, uh, people were starting to figure out what fossils were, but for, for years, people were finding fossils. They didn't know what they were. In China, they thought they were dragons. In fact, the modern name for dinosaurs in China means dragon. Um, and in Europe, they thought that they were the bones of giant people because the Bible said that there were giant people, so right, that's what this giant femur is all about. Or they thought they were just really old crocodiles or other creatures that lived before the flood and had been wiped out. And they had all kinds of crazy names for the fossils. Uh, my favourite one is that ammonites were called snake stones because they looked like a coiled-up snake. And sometimes they would paint a snake's head on the ammonite and they would sell it as a charm, which would protect you from serpents. So clearly that didn't happen in Ireland. because There any snakes there. That's not true. Um, But by the time Mary Anning was born, people had figured out that actually these were the remains of creatures that lived on Earth that no longer existed. And they lived a long time ago. They didn't know exactly how long ago they lived. They didn't know really what kind of creatures they were. But they were starting to think about it. And Mary was born in a place called Lyme Regis in Dorset in the south of England. Her father, Richard, was a cabinet maker and a skilled carpenter. And he once met Jane Austen. Uh, Jane Austen wrote about him in a letter, this is true, uh, because he was, you know, he was a local artisan and they called him to the house because so they had a, a broken box and they wanted to value how much the lid was worth because they wanted to sell it. And so they invited him to the house and he told them it was worth 15 shillings, which according to Jane Austen was ludicrous and was more than all the rest of the furniture in the room was worth. But she didn't think he was, you know, he thought he was just a canny operator, like he was trying to make money because it was a terrible time to be a member of the lower class in the United Kingdom. It was awful. Um, It was during the Napoleonic Wars, or just after, um, or just in between, because they had lots of them. Uh, And so there was, um, the the ports were blockaded. They were spending all their money on the war. There was a food shortage. The price of bread had skyrocketed. um, So starvation was a very real possibility. And it was really cold in Dorset. And the price of fuel, of of gas, of of oil to burn uh, was incredibly expensive. And so you might freeze to death or you might starve to death. It was a terrible time to be poor. Um, And Mary was one of ten siblings who were born to the Anning family, but she was one of only two of them who lived to be an adult. And that was a child mortality rate that was not unusual at the time. And she, in fact, was named after one of her younger sisters who had died at the age of four, um, possibly because... They were so cold that she threw wood shavings onto a fire and was unfortunately burned to death. So it was a horrible time um, to be poor in England. But Mary had a very lucky escape early in life when she was uh, only a bit older than one year old. She was being minded by a nurse, Elizabeth. And Elizabeth and a couple of her friends had heard that there was a travelling horse rider show coming to the town of Lyme Regis and it was just outside the town in fact so they went let's go in fact everyone went because it was a time of horrible depression and any kind of entertainment was warmly welcomed and they were watching the horse show and a thunderstorm rolled in and no one really wanted to leave so Elizabeth who was holding Mary and her two friends stood under a tree and got struck by lightning and all three of them died but Mary a baby survived she was unconscious, she got taken back to Lyme Regis, she was bathed in warm water, and she came back to life. And from that moment on, everyone swore she was much more lively than she ever used to be. <laughs> um, and they, they described her later on as curious, intelligent, and lively, and, they, and so many people uh, at the time always attributed that to the fact that she had survived being struck by lightning. <laughs> Not because she was just awesome, which was the, the, real, the real truth. Now, Lime Bay uh, in Lime Regis has become this popular holiday spot. It was well-known also as a source of fossil curios. And as I said, even now that they were trying to figure out that you know, fossils probably were these ancient animals and what kind of animals were they, what can we find out about them, um, people still didn't really know that much about them and they were only just beginning to be studied. So they were getting sold off as various things. Um, I mentioned before that Ammonites used to be called snake stones. By this time, they had another name. They were called uh, Cormononius in the local dialect. Um, They also uh, would find and sell shells, which they called ladies' fingers, because they're sort of weird, sort of... Who knows, they thought they looked like ladies' fingers. (laughs) I think bananas look like lady fingers, but you know, whatever. Uh, And they would find vertebrae of extinct animals. They didn't know what they were, they called them verteberries. (laughs) And they sold them on. Uh, And so to supplement their family's income, uh, the family had been looking for and selling fossils by the side of the road. There were quite a lot of people doing this, and some people were less successful than others. Um, but the Annings figured out that they could have a crack at this and they got quite good at it. Um, Mary had started collecting by the age of 11 and she was helping her father first, but unfortunately he died around that time. But by the age she was 20, she was one of the most well-known and successful fossil hunters in all of England and certainly the most well-known in Lyme Regis. At the age of 12 was when she made her first big significant find. It was a complete specimen of what people thought was an ancient crocodile. Her brother had found the head, and she managed to find the rest of it. And they sold it for £23 to a local lord of the manor. And he gave it to a collector named William Bullock, who showed it off in London. And eventually it got sold to the British Museum for about twice what the Annings had got paid for it. And there it was finally named. It was the first complete known fossil specimen of an ichthyosaur. This was huge. This led to a crazy change in the way people thought about ancient life on Earth. There's this idea sprung up that perhaps there was this age of reptiles when it wasn't mammals that were seen as the dominant force of life on Earth. Because, of course, remember, this is the 19th century when man was the dominant force on Earth. So mammals being like men and people must be, therefore, better than all other animals. And They believed in this hierarchy of creatures where mammals were at the top. And now they were blowing their minds by thinking, well, maybe there was a time when we weren't at the top, It was reptiles and some of them swam in the sea, had these big freaky eyes. It was blowing their minds. Um, But unfortunately, while they would occasionally find these big fossils, they were few and far between and they would mostly find only small fossils which didn't bring in that much money. And not for the last time, uh, when Mary was about 21, uh, in 1820, they were so desperate they were considering selling all the furniture in their house just so they had enough money to eat. And one of their big regular buyers, who was just an amateur fossil collector named James Thomas Birch, thought this was horrendous. So he sold off his entire collection of fossils that he'd previously bought for them at an auction and he donated the proceeds to them. We're not quite sure how many, much of the proceeds he donated, but he gave at least some of the money to them. And the auction went really well. It raised 400 pounds and it got interest from all over Europe. So there were people there from overseas. And it really raised the profile of Mary and her family as fossil collectors. And she went on to make a lot more important finds. Um, she found the first complete plesiosaurs in 1823 and another one in 1830. Uh, she found a pterosaur, that's a, a flying reptile. right The first one ever found outside of Germany in 1828. And she also found some significant fossil fish species in 1828 and 1829. And by the time of those later finds, around 1827, Mary had saved up enough money that she bought a house with a window shop front so she could sell fossils properly. And she named the shop. It was called Annings Fossil Depot. Yeah, She had a genius for the names. Um, And she was a major local figure. She'd get reported about in the local paper. They called her a persevering female. Because sexism was a thing in the nineteenth century, fortunately, it's still a thing now. But it was it, it was very popular in those days, and there was no one on Twitter to complain about it. <laughs> Only real life people. You can read about them at another time. Um, but they they were really excited, all right. And she had a big ichthyosaur on display in the shop, so people could go in there and go, "Oh, wow, this is amazing! Look at all the stuff you've got." But she wasn't just a collector. It's important to note that Mary Anning was not just a collector and seller of fossils. She had no formal education. She never went to school, but she did learn to read, and she read as much of the scientific literature about fossils as she could get her hands on. She would borrow papers from people, and when she couldn't keep them, she would painstakingly copy them out by hand because Xerox was not a thing. And she would also do copies of the illustrations uh, to which some paleontologists who saw her notes would say, I couldn't tell the difference between her copy and the original. She would dissect modern animals like fish and cuttlefish in order to better understand biology and anatomy. She became an expert preparer and preserver of the fossils that she found. She would mount them and get them ready to be displayed and studied so that they wouldn't fall apart. She was amazing. But for all the praise that got heaped on her in private letters and private correspondence with scientists of the time, The men who published scientific descriptions of her finds pretty much always only thanked whoever had bought them from her and given them to them, the publishers and writers, the scientists. And those people, the ones buying the fossils from her and passing them on to geologists, were just amateur collectors who knew much less about it than Mary. And she wasn't ignorant of what was going on. Right. She knew she was being mentioned very rarely, despite all this knowledge that she had assembled and the assistance that she would give. And the geologists of the time, famous ones, would come to Lyme Regis and go out fossil hunting with her because they knew she would be able to tell them where to go and what to find. She got so good at it, if she found a bone, she would just know what creature it was from. she didn't have to take it back to her house and compare it to her notes. And she resented that treatment. A friend of hers said that she described it as these men of learning have sucked my brains. They weren't zombies, okay. <laughs> they were scientists. And she was well aware that without her specimens they would have nothing to be publishing about. But not all of them were so callous. I mentioned before that in, uh, when, when the family were really in dire straits in ni- 1820 um, a friend of theirs had auctioned off his collection of their stuff and that similar things happened later on in life. Um, in 1830 uh, there was a geologist named Henry Delabesh, who was a friend of Mary Anning's, who'd been collecting fossils with her, and he realized that she was in really hard times. And so um, he got this other guy, George Schaff. ...to do a lithographic print of his famous painting. Now, George Sharp's famous painting um, has a Latin name that I can't pronounce... ...so it's not important what it's called, but you've probably seen it. It was an image of ichthyosaurs and plesiosaurs... ...all eating fish and each other and biting each other. And it was all based on science that was done on coprolites. Fossilised shit, okay, Which told them about the diet of those creatures. And it was an image of ancient life... ...the likes of which had never been seen before. And it blew people's minds... And it would have been impossible without the specimens that Mary Anning had collected. So he commissioned a lithographic print of this painting and sold it and gave the proceeds to Mary because she was in financial dire straits. And five years after that, um, she had another setback. She'd given all her savings to a man as an investment. And, uh, well, the the stories differ. Um, Some people say that he was a con man. He just ran off with it. Um, other people say he was a legitimate businessman who unfortunately just died after taking her money, and so she could never get it back from him. But whatever the case, she again found herself with no money. And William Buckland, who is one of the great famous figures in early paleontology history, successfully got the British Association for the Advancement of Science to award her a pension in recognition of her service to geology. They gave her £25 a year, which is not much even by those standards as a yearly stipend, but it helped her out of difficulty. But despite that, she remained completely unrecognised in the scientific literature. And she knew that other people were profiting from her labour. And the labour was hard. Collecting fossils was not a walk in the park. It was dangerous. You had to do it quickly while the tide was out. And you had to remove them, um, often above you. And you had to be careful because the limestone was not always terribly stable that the fossils were embedded in. And it could cause rock slides. And she almost died in 1933. She she accidentally caused a, a landslide Uh, which killed her dog. She had a dog named Trey who would go collecting fossils with her um, and he got buried by part of the cliff which fell down on him and he was standing right next to her feet and she realised at that point this is really dangerous. But she kept going because she believed in what she was doing and she needed to do it to stay alive. But it wasn't her job that ended her life. She was unfortunately diagnosed with breast cancer and the Geological Society found out about this in 1846 and they raised money from their members to help with her medical expenses. Um, she was made an honorary member of the Dorset County Museum that same year, before she died at the age of 47 in 1846. She became the first woman ever to be eulogised at a meeting of the Royal Society, but this was nearly 60 years before they would admit women as members. But In the early 20th century, there was a bit of a resurgence of interest In Mary Anning, she was seen as an inspirational figure, someone who had pulled herself up from her humble beginnings and really made a contribution to the world. So even though it was a long time before you could do this, now if you go to the National uh, History Museum in London, you can go and see one of the plesiosaur specimens that Mary Anning collected. And in the corner, it just says, Collector Mary Anning. And it's got a picture of her next to it. And she was immortalised, not in a film. Um, There were a couple of books... They're not very interesting. But she was immortalized in a poem because, uh, according to some sources, she was the inspiration for a poem that I'm sure you have all heard. She sells seashells by the seashore. (laughs) The shells she sells are seashells, I'm sure. So if she sells seashells on the seashore, then I'm sure she sells seashore shells. Thank you.